to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation, so we can grow in our relationship with God. So today's message is entitled, The Corrupted Church. Okay? According to Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Christ promises us that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. This is in fact very true. However, there are times throughout history where Christ's church has been corrupted. Obviously not through Christ's actions, but through man's. So the old adage rings true. Those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. So, what is my goal for this sermon? I'd like to review a part of history where the church has been corrupted by evil men, to look at the very possibility of it happening again in modern times, and how we can, the body of Christ, we can learn from the past so it can never happen again. Okay. So, uh, the term that I'm going to use right now is called, it's a German word, it's called the Reichskirche, Okay. And basically, it means it's the national church in Germany. This term describes uh, the Nazi church in Germany. And uh, Hitler, a baptized Catholic, had once described Jesus as our greatest Aryan hero. With that flawed perception already problematic, Hitler would eventually change his mind about Christianity. The preaching of meekness and flabbiness did not keep in step with the Nazi ideals of ruthlessness and strength. Hitler also believed that there was too much of an emphasis on the crucifixion, which he considered defeatist and depressing, and the Germans needed a more positive religion. This new religion that Hitler had in mind would get rid of the Old Testament, which was considered too Jewish. And this is a reminder of an old heretic named Martian, who tried to do away with the Old Testament altogether. And that you can find in your church history. There actually was a time where somebody said, you know what, we're done with the Old Testament, we don't need it. Hitler sought to replace the Bible with his book entitled Mein Kampf, which translates from German, My Struggle. The National Church, as it was called in English, would take down all crosses, crucifixes, and images of saints and replace them with the un- only unconquerable symbol, the swastika. He urged the clergy to unite under one national church, a church where pastors and bishops would swear allegiance to not God, but to Hitler himself. Now pay attention to that because you're going to see this theme on other examples. Under Hitler's plan in the new national church would immediately stop publishing and preaching the Bible and declare that the Führer's Mein Kampf, Führer, by the way, in German means chancellor, was to be the greatest of all documents. So if you ever read um, Mein Kampf by Hitler, he wrote that when he was in prison, um, and it pretty much outlines what he planned to do, and unfortunately, as history would say it, that's exactly what he did. And imagine that, that book, which is probably the most, one of the infamous books ever created, would replace the Bible. That's what he wanted. As stated earlier, this new church will have to get rid of all the crosses and crucifix. In addition, they had to remove the Bible, pictures of saints from the altar, and put nothing on the altar except the Mein Kampf. And the swastika will replace the cross. 
And if you could uh, put that image up, please, entitled uh, Nazi Christian Flag. So this flag you would see in front of the church. It's haunting because we, it's not so much too far from our past. Um, but imagine that symbol in a church. So take just a, a second to look at that and let it sink in because I think images can sometimes be more powerful than words. Now, church leaders were deeply divided. Some enthusiastic pastors, enthusiastic pastors let their anti-Semitism show and embrace Hitler's plan to do away with all Jewish elements from their religion and to ban pastors with Jewish blood. Other church leaders considered this heresy. Amen to them. Hitler was confident that he can change the church into a Nazi church. He is on record for saying they will submit. Clergy are nothing but insignificant little people. Submissive as dogs. They sweat with embarrassment when you talk to them. So this is what he thinks of us Christians. However, a handful of these insignificant people that Hitler wonderfully described included Diedrich Bonhoeffer, a champion of the faith, Franz Hillebrandt, one of his um, colleagues, and others who had, been quiet, had quietly fought back. They hardly could believe that not only had the church failed to stand up to Hitler, but now had become an instrument of oppression. The dissenters didn't want to create a schism. They wanted to form a wing of the church that put their allegiance to God ahead of the Nazi party. A church that would give aid to those hurt by the new anti-Jewish laws and rejected the Aryan-inspired church. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, a champion against Hitler, and his propaganda formed the Pastors' Emergency League. He created a protest letter against Hitler signed by 6,000 pastors. Amen, right? Bonhoeffer sent out, uh, sent out this letter of warning this group of dissenting pastors to be on the lookout of Nazi spies visiting their churches. Okay, we have to worry about people coming in and shooting up the church, but also now, remember, now imagine a time where you had secret police come into the church and they would sit down at the pew and listen to your message. And if you went against what the, the Fuhrer was saying, what Hitler was saying, you were taken away uh, in a secret camp somewhere. And this happened all over. He instructed them to let them know if any of Hitler's men tried to interfere with the congregations. Somehow his letter fell into the wrong hands. On July 24, 1933, two Gestapo, which is secret police in German, visited Bonhoeffer's door. They threatened him to stop what he was doing or he would be sent to a concentration camp. So we're going to pause with Bonhoeffer there because his story alone, uh, I could have spent the whole time talking about him, maybe on, on another sermon, but he, um, he was one of the ones that tried to stop this. Now, Bonhoeffer did not submit. As a matter of fact, he would take even bigger risks, as stated, but would not put his fellow pastors in harm's way. He instructed the pastors to destroy all the leaflets that were critical of the Nazi church and to try to keep ministering to their parishes under the new constraints. He wanted to protect them. He wasn't giving up. He wanted to protect them from what was happening. He wanted to, have the, to get the brunt of, of the problems, not so much his colleagues. That fall, some leaders of Hitler's new church staged a rally at a huge sports arena under the banner that read, One Reich, One People, One Church. More than 2,000 people gathered to pledge allegiance to the new Nazi religion, the Reichskirche. And could you put the Nazi church picture up, please? So this is outside the church. 
Again, we saw those symbols there. Saw a Nazi flag, a cross. Now, can, can you imagine that? Imagine either tomorrow or even go back in time that you see the church, the holy house of God, adorned with, let's be honest, a form of Satanism. That blows my mind. Like, how do we dodge a bullet in history? So now, we're going to fast forward to the communist church. Okay, there are some parallels here. Now, fast forward into the not-so-distant future, and the church became corrupted again. This time in the communist regime by ways of the USSR. Richard Warmbrand, a Lutheran pastor in Hungary, which was invaded by the communists, describes that happened in detail. And I'm going to read for you, read for you what he said. Once the communists came to power, they skillfully used the means of seduction toward the church. The language of love and the language of seduction are the same. The one who wishes a girl for a wife and the one who wishes her only for one night says, I love you. Jesus had told us to discern from the language of seduction and the language of love and to know the wolves clad in sheep's clothing from the real sheep. Unfortunately, when the communists came to power, thousands of priests, pastors, and ministers did not know how to discern between the two voices. Now, how significant is that in today's day and age? The communists convened a congress of all Christian bodies in our parliament building. There were 4,000 priests, pastors, and ministers, all of different denominations. The men of God chose Stalin as an honorary president of this congress. At the same time, he was president of the world movement of the godless and mass murderer of Christians. One after the other, bishops and pastors arose and declared that communism and Christianity were all fundamentally the same that could coexist. One minister after the other said the words of praise toward communism and assured the new government of the loyalty of the church. My wife and I were present at this Congress. Sabina told me, Richard, stand up and wash away this shame from the face of Christ. They are spitting in his face. I said to her, if I do so, you, lo- you lose your husband. She replied, I don't wish to have a coward as a husband. Then I arose and spoke to this Congress, praising not the murderers of Christians, but to Jesus Christ, stating that our loyalty is due to him. Amen? The speeches at this Congress were broadcast, and the whole country could hear proclaimed from the rostrum of the Communist Parliament the message of Christ. Afterward, I had to pay for this, but it was worthwhile. Orthodox and Protestant church leaders competed with each other, yielding to communism. This one blows my mind when I wrote it. When I mean when I read it. An Orthodox bishop stitched the hammer and sickle on his robes and asked his priest to no longer call him your grace, but comrade bishop. Priests by the names of Pariascu and Rosianu were more direct. They became officers of the secret police. Another pastor by the name of Rapp, a deputy bishop in a Lutheran church in Romania, began to teach in theological seminary that God had given three revelations, one through Moses, one through Jesus, and one through Stalin the last superseding the one before. In other words, according to the communists, of these three revelations, Stalin was the most important. And uh, can you put up the video titled Speaking Out, please? They convened a congress of cults for all ministers, pastors, and rabbis. Joseph Stalin was appointed as honorary patron. 
în timp ce România se îndreaptă către un progres inevitabil, vom adăuga în acest panteon al personalităților istoriei pe Darwin, pe Nietzsche, pe Hegel și, desigur, pe Marx. The Congress was broadcast across the nation. The idea was to persuade the public of the communist intent to cooperate fully with the churches. My wife, Sabina, and I watched as religious leaders, one after another, took the podium and spoke words assuring the communists of the loyalty of the church. It is happening here just as it did in Russia. And our glorious new Romanian government is in favor of faith. Any faith. They are even going to increase the pay of the clergy. Lenin defended the church until he came to power. Then tens of thousands of Christians die in concentration camps. This is madness. They are spitting in the face of Christ. Will, will you not wash this you do know that if I speak now, you will have no husband. I don't need a coward for a husband. Scrie un bilet ca toți ceilalți și așteaptă srândul. Da, sau aș putea să cobor acum. Îl cunoști pe omul ăsta? Da, Richard Burnbrand, pastorul terar, e foarte respectat. Burnbrand. Nu o să ne facă probleme, nu? Nu. Cred că susținerea unui reprezentant al Consiliului Mondial al Bisericilor ar ajuta. În continuare, îl vom asculta pe pastorul Richard Wurmbrand Luteran, reprezentând misiunea Bisericii Suedeze și Ordinul Mondial al Bisericilor. Dragi prieteni, ne-am adunat astăzi aici ca Sfânta Preoțimea Lui Dumnezeu să preaslăvim numele Lui Hristos, nu partidul. Comunismul i-a transformat pe frații noștri în martiri. Cum ar putea fi lăudat? Datoria noastră nu este să susținem puterile lume care vin și pleacă. Datoria noastră este să preamărim numele Lui Dumnezeu a tot Creatorul și a Lui Hristos, Mântuitorul, care a murit pentru noi pe cruce. Și s-a fost retras. 
Isuc a fost bagiocurit de cei care sunt iau. Mai știu un miracol. I-ai salvat pe alții și nu te poți salva pe tine? Ajunge! Ajunge! Miracolul a fost! Să microfonul! Că deși l-au bătut, cine So, now let's look into possible modern examples of a corrupt church. So about two years ago, I went to the Voice of the Martyrs conference. For those of you who are unaware, the Voice of the Martyrs is an organization that seeks to minister to Christians overseas. What I am talking about today, in hope of it never becoming a reality here, is happening overseas every day. Professing Christians, our brothers and sisters in the faith, are being killed tortured, and even physically mutilated for professing faith in Christ. This organization was started by none other than Richard Rumren upon his release from the Soviet captivity. Can you uh, put up the persecuted map here, please? So if you look at this map, it's a little bit hard, but I'll show it to you. It's divided high-risk area, at-risk area, areas of concern. Okay, let's go from the bottom. Areas of concern are places where we have to keep an eye on unless it might happen. At-risk area are places in, uh, in blood red where it's like, um, where it's imminent, something's going to happen. And high risk is red where brothers and sisters of Christianity are being killed every day. And look how red it is. North Africa, Middle East, Russia, China. So those are the areas that are big-time problems. That's happening every day. Now, when I was at the uh, conference, one of the, the quotes that really stood out to me, and it stuck with me for years, and to this day it still stuck with me, is to picture a fence that separates the East and from the West. If we as Westerners don't look over that fence to see the persecution happening in China and North Africa and the Middle East, then it will come right to our doorstep. I pray that it will never happen here, but to be honest with you, I think it is now on our doorstep. And if it's not on our doorstep, it's, it's dangerously close. So how long are we going to be the, uh, the risk area, high risk area? Can you um, put the uh, Catholic Church Invaded by Protesters video, please? Protesters dressed in outfits seemingly inspired by The Handmaid's Tale protested inside of the cathedral, and it was all captured on camera. In the middle of mass at the Cathedral of Our Lady of Angels in downtown L.A. on Mother's Day, commotion erupts as a group of protesters dressed in what appeared to be characters from the hit Hulu show, The Handmaid's Tale, disrupt service. Now I'm awake. 
The show was about a totalitarian society ruled by a fundamentalist regime that treats women as property of the state. The protesters dressed in the signature robes purportedly to protest the Supreme Court potentially overturning Roe v. Wade and the Catholic Church's opposition to abortion. Behind the cell phone video is Sal Vermilio, a parishioner who saw it all unfold. A lot of people were asking me after it, they were, they were saying, um, what's, what's with the costumes? And, and it was, oh, it's, it was a TV show. It's The Handmaid's Tale. And they go, oh, the TV show. So they, some of them, they didn't understand the, the, um, the connection. So, um, see, I, I still don't understand too much of the connection. He says the protesters blended in with other parishioners at first. They're dressed in regular clothes, and then they got up and they started putting their garbs on. And then that's when security um, saw them. They, they were on top of it. They were, they were right there. Pushing the protesters out, their yells echoing through the cathedral. The Archdiocese of L.A. released a statement saying, quote, demonstrations had been anticipated across the country. The incident was handled accordingly by cathedral security, ensuring limited disruption of mass. And between security and parishioners, the protesters were escorted out of the building and mass continued following the unexpected demonstration. We reached out to the group that conducted the protest, but we have not yet heard back. Reporting live this evening, I'm Coco McAvoy, Fox 11 News. Coco, thank you. And uh, one more video, please. Uh, abortion rights activists disrupt service at Lakewood Church. None of the other top stories we are following on this Sunday. Major drama at Lakewood Church today as Joel Osteen's service was disrupted by abortion rights activists who filmed their protests and then posted it on social media. It's my body, my choice. Okay, we had to bleep that out. Three activists with Texas Rise Up for Abortion Rights stood up and shouted, you saw it there, my body, my choice. Then stripped down to their underwear at the beginning of the Lakewood service. That was this morning. They continued their chant as they were escorted out of the sanctuary. Once outside, they joined about a dozen of their fellow activists in a demonstration. All this comes, of course, as the U.S. Supreme Court is expected to officially rule on the constitutionality of Roe versus Wade this month. A draft opinion, if you recall, was leaked last month, shows the high court is ready to strike down the landmark decision which legalized abortion. Now, you might say, so what if Joel Osteen's church is invaded by protesters? It's Joel Osteen, and he's extremely problematic. I agree with you. Or, who cares if it's the Catholic Church? They have a different doctrinal issues. They have doctrinal issues, and they're, they are, they're different than us Bible-believing Christians. I would say that I agree with you in your stance, but I don't agree with you in your application. Again, picture that fence. If we don't have the wisdom to see what's around us and over the fence... And we have already lost. I would like to uh, introduce you to further that by uh, author by Martin Nemoller. He has a famous poem, First They Came for the Communists, that I think is timely and an example of what we're talking about. Have you guys ever heard that poem before? Great, I'm here to show it to you. First they came for the communists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. 
Then they came, up, they came for the Catholics. I didn't speak up because I was Protestant. Then they came for me. And by that time, there was no one left to speak up for me. So that's one area I see, um, you know, leading to persecution. But what about doctrinal issues? What about within the church? Okay, we just looked at things coming outside of the church and against the church. What about within? So I could have went so many different places with this, but I decided to talk about churches that have a different doctrine. All right? A threat from outside of the church will always be concerning and highly problematic, just as we spoke about today's modern-day examples. Coupled with the Nazi and communist church, what about threats from within the church? And what if wrong doctrine is implemented? Can that not also be a threat to the body of Christ? New Age spirituality is affecting the church at an alarming rate. Many young evangelicals do not feel at home at the church. They are seeking a generation and are uncomfortable with being told what to believe, but are committed to finding a faith that is right for them. Despite being well-meaning and well-intentioned, souls, this generation is open to seeking spiritual experiences independent of biblical doctrine. In order to be more relevant, New Age spirituality is widely accepted in our culture and also taught alongside biblical teaching in our seminaries and our churches. The textbooks usually contain New Age practices based on mystical experiences of God rather than the scriptures. For example, one author uses the example of Christ about paying attention to the lilies in the field, but makes a comment about supporting naturalism over biblical doctrine. He is quoted as saying, whoever wrote this stuff believed that people could learn as much about the ways of God from paying attention to the world as they could from paying attention to the scripture. Do you see the contradiction here? Do you see how someone can mistake a philosophy of naturalism as opposed to biblical doctrine? So let's look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34, and see what it says. Starting at 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, or what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow, or consider the lilies of the field. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here tomorrow and then thrown, it, and then thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And you, your heavenly Father, knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all the things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Does this sound like the commentator knew what he was talking about? Or is Jesus saying something different? Many books of this nature are potent because it presents God as more accessible, more easily experienced, without much need for specific biblical doctrine. 
So I don't know where that guy got that from about looking at the field and, 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 the, and the trees and that's, and that's how God looks at the world. That's not what that text is saying. You've got to read the whole chapter in context to see what he's saying. And people get away with it. You know, it's like, it's like a, a, there's an author, uh, every dime a dozen, writing whatever they want and they get away with it because it's, it's, it's so much free. Nobody, unless you know your Bible, nobody's going to question it. But they write it and, it and it gathers steam and it goes. You know, you guys know I, I probably study martial arts. I study a lot of Eastern uh, philosophy in comparison. This guy sounds like he was from the East somewhere. We have to know our stuff and we have to know what we're talking about. Now, we must teach people that the only sure knowledge that we have of God is anchored and based on Scripture. Scripture must be believed whether we experience God or not. So, for me, for example, I love God's Word, and I, and I, I find myself, I feel the Holy Spirit, but a lot of times I'm like, oh, these guys are experiencing outer body stuff. It must be nice. I mean... That's not God. You know, I think God speaks to me through the word, you know, but at the same time, I feel the Holy Spirit. There are times where I've felt the Holy Spirit in presence of others. I feel him here tonight. It's just not, ooh, look at me, like a lot of people are looking for. That's the issue. Now, this also goes with Martin Luther. The night before his confrontation of the place known as the Diet of Worms, he didn't have experience with God at all. He begged God to help him, but he was met only with silence. The next day, with nothing to guide him except God's bare word, Luther refused to recant his statement or position. This has been recorded as a turning point in church history. We might learn a few things about God when experiencing the world, but only in Scripture do we have a reliable God to lead us to encounter God in salvation. Amen? Sometimes we have no experience with God at all. But according to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7, we walk by faith and not by sight. Teaching the body of Christ how to study the Bible, walk in the Spirit, and grow in biblical faith is far better, a far better option than New Age spirituality. Now, I don't know if you guys ever heard of Thomas Merton, but remember that name. A lot of times when I study this stuff, I remember names, and I remember places, and, and I kind of do like a, you know, like, my head. Okay, this, this guy did this. Okay, he's not, you know, I do the whole like equation in my head just to at least mark the guy so I know I heard about him. I can go back and study him and say, yeah, good. Yeah, no, good. But it's like, I wish you could see the form in my head. It's like, it's like a like, like bionic man. Like, uh, nope, does not compute. Okay, let's move on. So Thomas Merton, who was a Catholic theologian greatly influenced by Eastern religions. Some people who knew him well said he was more Buddhist than Christian. Now, compare this to, to Bonhoeffer, who greatly admired Gandhi and wanted to meet him to help him with his struggle with the Nazis, but was not interested in influenced by uh, Gandhi's doctrine. So think about that. Bonhoeffer, a hero of the faith, wanted to meet Gandhi because he, he uh, enjoyed the nonviolent approach he was using. But he wasn't interested in becoming a Hindu. He wasn't interested in Hindu doctrine. He was interested in Christian doctrine and maybe using the ways of, of, of Gandhi, as opposed to Merton, who is like, Christian, Buddhist, I don't know. We'll see what tomorrow brings. Henry Nowen, another Catholic theologian in his book, Pray to Live, says that Merton was able to uncover the stream 
where wisdom of the East and West flow together beyond domain the septics of inner experience. Merton embraced the spiritual philosophies of the East and integrated this wisdom into his own life by direct practice. Merton himself writes, At the center of our being is a point of nothingness, which is untouched by sin and illusion, a point of pure truth. This little point of nothingness is a pure glory of God in us. It's in everybody. He continues with, It is a glorious destiny to be a member of the human race. Now I realize that what we all are, If only people could see themselves as they really are, I suppose the big problem would be that we would fall down and worship each other. Does that sound like Christianity to you? Not even close. And it's funny, I was actually watching this movie. uh, I thought it was a Christian movie. Actually, it's kind of dark, but it kind of goes in line if you study apologetics. It's called First Reformed. And it's about a priest or or a pastor in a, I think, Episcopalian church where he loves Thomas Merton so much, and he gets encountered, he's, he thinks he's trying to minister to um, a, a, a person from his church who's an environmentalist. And he's able to convince him that global warming is a big thing, and the world is going to end, and all this kind of stuff. And then later on, I come to realize, no wonder this guy in the movie loves Thomas Merton, because he's all about that. All is one. One is all. So yeah, if you have a wrong theology, you're going to get sucked into... Yeah, the, the earth is dying. What are we going to do about it? Not saying not take care of the earth, but what I'm saying is I'm not going to breathe and be like, the earth is everything. That's the issue. So if you watch that movie, it's dark. I, it's a good movie, but parental discretion is advised. <laughs> now, quite possibly the most famous and dangerous theologian in this area and comparable to Merton is by a man named Richard Rohr. In his book, The Divine Dance, The Trinity of Your Transformation, this book is not about the Trinity. Instead, Rohr uses Trinitarian language to give us a background of his own odd spiritual teachings. By the way, false teachers will use Christian language to make false things. This is how you have cults. This is how you have the Davidian cult. Uh, you know, if you read, um, who is it, uh, the Kingdom of the Cults, they do that all the time. You'll talk to a New Age Christian, you'll talk about salvation, you'll talk about it biblical, they'll talk about it something differently, and it looks like you're having a conversation, but it's really doublespeak to deceive. This book exalts human nature, our divineness and our ability to meet God without doctrine or teachings of religion. There is no emphasis on repenting of sin or seeing who we are in the presence of the Almighty Father. Your starting point does not matter. According to Richard Rohr, you are already in the divine flow, whatever that means. All the themes of the Eastern religion in Rohr's book put, just like Thomas Merton's work, he focuses on pantheism. And pantheism is, is defined as God is the flow of all creation. We are all God. We're all connected. Human beings are a part of the flow. Creation is considered by him to be the fourth person in Trinity, which I don't know. I use the word Trinity and put four people, four things there, but whatever. Universalism, just like pantheism, is a big is a big theme in Rohr's work. Everyone and everything is spirit, and everything is connected. I do not believe in the wrath of God, he says. It is theologically impossible when God is Trinity. The book ends with various prayers from all different faith traditions. You know what's scary? This is the Antichrist religion. They're going to take all the religions and smash them together and just make them all, you know, palatable and get rid of all the stuff, all the, all the division. 
What is so attractive to the new age spirituality? At least, at last, people have God who agrees with them about everything. They want a God who does not embarrass them, a God who thinks just as they do. They want, they want a theology that diminishes the horror of sin and magnifies how good we human beings actually are. Self-salvation has many forms and is very attractive. We want a God that is very broad. And the Apostle Paul warned us about this in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verses 3 to 4. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say with what their engineers want to hear. They will, turn their, uh, they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. That day, brothers and sisters, is already upon us. So, what can we do about it? So tonight we looked at the actual corruption of the church. The Nazis and the communists successfully did this. We also looked at modern threats invading the church, as well as doctrine that is already corrupting the church from within. I would like to to offer solutions. There is always good news. These are things we can apply today for a more joyous future. Number one, stand, stand firm on the truth of the gospel. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And we should never water down the gospel to be friends with a dying world. Number two, stay salty. Share the savory salt of the gospel wherever you go. Number three, seek God's approval, not the approval of man. If you want to be friends with the world, conform to this world and call it the gospel. If we are not at odds with the culture, then we are at odds with God. Be on guard against false teachings. Tonight's, tonight is an example. Remember the names Thomas Merton and Richard Rohr. Take into consideration what we reviewed today. Examine the false claims of churches who lean the extreme left and use New Age as a source. Be aware of the subtle, a small lie is still a lie. Sidestepping the truth is still deceptive. I heard somebody once say that if you give me a cup of water, and it's a, let's say it's 16 ounces, even 24 ounces, and you put a little bit of um, septic stuff in there, it's still going to contaminate the whole thing. So think about that, because that's how false teachers operate. A little bit of truth and a little bit of lie. Number five, don't fear the world and its persecution. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. If God prompts you to speak the truth or challenge falsehood, take a moment to pray and engage. Proverbs 29.25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Don't let Satan ensnare you in fear. Trust God, speak boldly, act boldly, and vanquish your fears through faith and obedience. Number six, don't be afraid. Though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we do not fear the evil of this world. The good shepherd Jesus is with us. He guards us, protects us, provides us, and guides us, and leads us on the path of righteousness. In times of fear, memorize Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. 
Yeah, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup runs over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Number seven, remember your eternal destiny. We were made for heaven. It's a tragedy that we, cho- that we lose sight of our heavenly destiny. Heaven is an objective reality, and there's, there will be a new earth. Number eight, know your rights. The Bill of Rights is an excellent place to start. The first ten amendments of our Constitution. Learn about this history and the Declaration of Independence. It is a univer- if a university official says you can't talk about God on campus, or if a city official says you can't hand out gospel literature at the park, respectfully assert your constitutional rights. Understand what the Constitution does and does not protect. Number nine, pray for boldness and discernment. There's a time to speak out and there's a time to hold your peace. If you feel God is calling you to speak in defense of his truth, pray for courage and wisdom and speak out. Remember the scene, um, Torture for Christ, after she said, I don't want a coward for a husband? He breathed, and then he stood up. I love that. Number, number 10, morally and spiritually purify yourself. Repent of your sins and turn to God for forgiveness and restoration according to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 13 to 15. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. Also Psalm 33 verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God... Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. Now listen to this one. Hear me on this. We cannot expect God to bless us if we are continuing in sin and disobedience. Seek God's face and ask him to heal our land. Number 11. Pray for our nation. Thank God for our country and ask him for revival. Ask him to turn every church and home into a house of prayer. Ask him to purify his people so that the bride of Christ will be faithful and holy. Ask him to set us apart as his followers consecrated to his service and the preaching of his gospel. Remember that we are the bride of Christ. We want to wear that white, white dress. We want to be pure for when Christ comes back. These are the things we have to do. Number 12, persevere in sharing the gospel with everyone around you. Whether people accept the good news or reject it, never give up. Never stop witnessing. Remember Jeremiah, who for 40 years preached the gospel and it fell on deaf ears, and he did it anyway. According to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-4, to 4, Therefore I exalt, exhort first all of the supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just a few more. 13. 
demonstrate the forgiving love of Jesus at all times. These are tough times for the church. Our enemies hate God and hate his church. Let us respond with the love of Christ. Respond with prayer, compassion, and forgiveness. Number 14, put on the full armor of God. Prepare for spiritual warfare. Remember our enemy is Satan and his demons and not flesh and blood. And that's so important nowadays. We see the flesh all over the news, all over just playing out. We have to remember that there are demons behind that are pulling the strings. Number 15, study the Bible, walk in the Spirit, and grow in biblical faith. These three things is what our church does so great. They, they promote us to study the Bible. We study the Bible here. Walk in the Spirit. It's the Spirit that guides everything. And grow in biblical faith. Over time, we grow, we learn. Number 16, start building resistance cells and networks. If things get really bad from form an underground church or home church with like-minded believers, I would even argue to start doing that now. Get into fellowship with each other and pour into each other. Strengthen those bonds now. Hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. Be faithful if the persecution comes. Structure your daily life to deepen your discipleship, either if you're free or in prison. If in prison, confessional differences didn't matter. Work with other believers, even if you don't agree with them on everything. And this one might sound surprising, but it's true. Make common cause with people who aren't believers. Okay, if you're in a situation where you are there for the same reason, pour into each other. Do it out of love for Christ. And that could, that could be a uh, mission field of its own or not. But make sure that, you know, you have a common cause. And with that, I leave you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossroads. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. And Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org, where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless.